0: You're listening to the Bible Nerd Podcast, a weekly show where we're exploring the world of the Bible, helping you fall more in love with Jesus, and building a thoughtful defense for the Christian worldview. I'm your host, Steve Schramm. Welcome to the show. Well, we're excited about another uh, awesome week here full of biblical content, awesome Bible nerdery. I hope you uh, enjoy what we're doing here on the show, and thank you again for choosing choosing to spend your time with us this week. Let me say before we begin that I would like to, um, uh, Tell you about our sponsor for the podcast, and actually for all the ministry activities we do, and it's quite literally the thing that uh, finances the whole, um, the whole shebang. You might say it is my business, North Mac Services. We work on websites for uh, small businesses, nonprofits, mom and pop shops, you know, HVAC guys, uh, executive leadership coaches, all across the board. We have done it, and we are um, just uh, growing and excited about what the Lord is doing, both here in the ministry and in the business. The best way, again, to support this ministry is if you or someone you know needs uh, some help with their website, with their marketing, with their Uh, online presence trying to to grow their business or their ministry then the best way you can support this podcast is to come my way or to send them my way and uh, uh, allow me to have a conversation with them and you know maybe we can see if there's a way that we can help them do what they do best uh, by us doing what we do best so it's me and a very small team that uh, works with me on a a pretty regular basis and we uh, I like to think do a pretty good job for folks so if you would be interested in that just contact me you can get to us by going to northmacservices.com, spelled exactly like it sounds. North Mac Services. Dot com, and you can go there and check out all those things that we have to offer. Well, as we get started today, let me say by way of announcement here that this is going to be a little bit different than how we normally do things. You know, I normally have a blog post that is pretty much associated with what uh, goes on in the podcast, and it's got footnotes and everything all throughout. You could check out the links and such, so you could even read along and listen along. I learn better that way, and I know other people do as well. But today is at least going to be a little bit different on that. I have a very detailed outline published as the blog post today, and it's that way because this is a teaching outline that I used for an overview of the book of Daniel when I was teaching in our men's small group at church. And so this is exactly what we're going to follow for today. This is what we're going to talk about today. Um, The book of Daniel being a portrait of prayer, of power and of prophecy. So I've got this detailed outline published to the blog as today's post, and uh, you can go check that out. Just search for Daniel if you're listening to this later, and surely it will come right up, okay? So Daniel, and we're going to follow him along. You can follow along on this outline. I still have lots of links and um, Bible verses and show notes uh, and, um, and footnotes and things like that throughout that you can check out. But instead of a blog post, it's just a detailed outline, and it's what we're going to be following today as we go through this particular study. So I'm excited about diving into it and talking about the book of Daniel. Now, the authorship and dating of Daniel are actually quite highly controversial, maybe one of the most controversial books to that end in the entire Bible. Uh, with uh, There are folks on multiple sides, e- even conservatives. You know, Bible believing Christians are going to hold varying opinions about some of this for different reasons. Now, one primary reason for this is the stunning prophetic accuracy of the book. Um, Many argue that. On this basis, it actually appears to include for, uh, linguistic details from a later time period. And so, uh, in other words, what, what we're saying here is that while some take an earlier date of writing, and therefore we have prophecy, some take a later date of writing, and some do it for the explicit purpose of trying to say, no, this wasn't actually prophecy. It was just written later because, it, again, it's so It's so accurate. Now, the early date, which is going to be held by at least most uh, conservative scholars, is the 6th century BC, which would place the book having been written in the time period in which it is set. Well, that's a pretty reasonable idea, I think. Um, And those who would take the later date, which is the 2nd century BC, that's roughly uh, 400 years later, they would say that it was um, being, you know, writ... Kind of like how, or or, uh, written, excuse me, kind of like how, you know, we could have a novel that's written today, but set in an earlier time period. Same kind of idea. We could, we could, you know, have have somebody who wrote the book of Daniel, they set it in that, you know, different uh, time period, even though it was written much later now this would also entail of course that that daniel who we understand to be the biblical daniel himself was not the writer but perhaps it was some uh, anonymous jew or someone else writing under the pseudonym of daniel so those are kind of the ideas that are uh, uh, put forth and laid out there um we're not going to get into the, the weeds, really, on the dating and authorship stuff today. Uh, there is, you know, there's some interesting resources out there uh, for that. If I could just summarize it this way, though, it's almost kind of a moot point. There are arguments on both sides. There are even conservative scholars who take the later position based on some of those arguments, and um, And they would have no problem accepting the idea of prophecy. Um, But if you really look at it and you lay out the arguments, you could pretty much come up with a list of things that support either case. And so I think the... Um, earlier date is the accurate one. I think the early date where the events are actually being written during the time period they were set and that God was giving all of this stuff to to, to Daniel as a prophecy, I think that's the right way uh, of understanding this. Again, there are people on both sides, but I think the early date is the most accurate given the information that we do have. Uh, by way of a key verse, what, what, what would be maybe a key verse from the book of Daniel that would kind of summarize the uh, meaning of the book, the overall um you you know, gist of the book. I think it's probably Daniel two forty-four. You're welcome to disagree, but I think it's probably Daniel chapter two and verse number forty-four. Here's what it says. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And it shall stand forever. Now here's some interesting facts as we go through and take a look at some different ideas from the book. So first, um, his name means God is my judge. That's what the word Daniel means. God is my judge. His life and ministry span the entire 70-year period of Babylonian captivity. I mean, he uh, was taken captive as a young man and quickly raised up through the ranks. You know, they saw that he was a very smart, you know, a very intelligent uh, person, a very wise person. And he, of course, if you've read the book of Daniel at all, you know, y- there are these circumstances in which Daniel basically uh, gave honor and all glory to the Lord in face of insurmountable almost circumstances. And yet, in some cases, it garnered him respect with those in leadership even those who were not followers of Yahweh. And his resolve was such that he made an impact on people. And from uh, just a practical perspective, shouldn't we desire that about us? Um, You know, you can be uh, a respectable person. You You can be a person who makes an influence on those around you, even those who don't live for Christ, just by having some sort of resolve for standing up for what you believe in, for having good reasons for why you believe in those things, and having a sincerity uh, about you and a an air of truth about you that is just hard for people to deny and hard for people to ignore. That, from a very practical perspective, is something we can learn from the life of Daniel. Again, he was deported to Babylon, which was 900 miles away, when he was only 16 years old. Only 16 he was selected for special service in Babylon and given three years of training in the best of Babylon's Schools, I mean they were bringing him up right through the ranks He was giving a Babylonian name. He was given a Babylonian name Belteshazzar meaning Bell protect his life Bell protect his life now Bell was the title that was assigned to various Mesopotamian gods now you know, what, what could be said about that? Well, again, that those who were in leadership there and those who um, had a, a special liking to Daniel, of course, they weren't followers of Yahweh. So they named him based on even their false gods that they followed. They, they admired him and revealed him, revered him uh, such that they um, they gave sort of an endearing title to him based on based on their gods, even though they knew that he followed Yahweh. He made an impact on these people. Nine out of the 12 chapters in Daniel revolve around dreams. Around dreams, and that's really interesting because the whole dream thing is something that we don't really see that much today. We don't really talk about that much today. There is much aversion to it, the whole visions and dreams thing, and uh, evangelicalism. And I think for probably pretty good reason, there have been many, many uh, fakes and hoaxes over the years that have been attributed to that kind of thing. It's always funny how that kind of thing um, is, is 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 attributed to things that can't be confirmed or proven by any third party. You just kind of have to take somebody's word for it, and. Um, Anyway, that, that's a hobby horse I could go out on. Uh, but God has interacted that way in the past. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. I'm cautious but open. God can do what he wants to do. There is no verse in the Bible that says nobody's ever going to dream a dream again. Um, you know, that that has some sort of spiritual significance. Uh, that, you know, that verse isn't in the Bible. So I, I think as a manner of operating that God typically does not speak in that way today. But if God wanted to get the message across, I don't see why he couldn't. God is still God. Um, and I'm not going to place constraints on him that he does not place on um, himself. So that's just my uh, thoughts on that. I have more detailed and nuanced thoughts on that on an episode of my uh, podcast that I record sometimes on the go called Theology on the Road. You could check out an um, a episode of that titled Dreams if you would like to. Theology on the Road and the episode is titled Dreams. And I, I spoke more about this there and kind of worked through the thinking of it on my way to work one morning. So you might find that interesting if you want to go deeper into that subject. Out of the 2,930 Bible characters, Daniel is one of the few well-known characters about whom nothing negative is ever written. Joseph is another one of these. Nothing negative is written about these figures, about Daniel. And that's just, uh, that's really interesting because, you know, the Bible is not afraid to point out the scars, right? I mean, some of the most... um, well-respected biblical uh, figures and highly revered biblical figures, um, even those that, I mean, look at Abraham, I mean, the friend of God, uh, according to Hebrews, and yet uh, his moral failures are on display for all of history to observe. The same is true of King David. The same is true of the uh, Apostle Peter. There are failures in thinking, failures in human decency you know failures in in measuring up to god's expectation and yet those things are recorded and we see nothing like that in daniel we see nothing like that everything that's recorded about him is cast in a a a positive light and so i think that's interesting uh does that mean daniel never did anything wrong does that mean daniel lived in sinless perfection surely it does not but it is a massive testament to the um (laughs) <laughs> to, to the impact of his life again to the way that he lived his life especially being bathed in the environment of false gods and such that he was he was deep in that babylonian environment and yet nothing bad could be said about daniel that was worthy of putting into the scriptures and i think that is just a huge huge uh, testament and compliment to him his life was characterized by these things by faith by faith. Daniel was huge on faith. Daniel had faith in God despite the circumstances in many, many cases that are reported here, and I'm sure many more beyond that. Prayer. Prayer is a huge theme in the book of Daniel. Daniel's um, uh, resolve and willingness to pray despite the fear of impending and certain persecution. Courage. Courage. Many times, he overtly, (laughs) overtly denied what the leaders of the day were trying to place upon him; those uh, certain responsibilities and certain restrictions that they placed upon him, and he said, "No, I'm not going to have it. I'm standing up to you." Consistency, and of course, lack of compromise; these are uh, related ideas. Uh, to, to again, courage—he he kept consistent. He did not um, back down, and he didn't compromise for anything. He never compromised his values. He stood strong and stood up for what he believed. The book of Daniel has also been called the Apocalypse of the Old Testament. So it was written in, in the genre of Jewish apocalyptic literature. And this is notoriously difficult literature to understand. You know, it's going to deal with... Certain things, um, uh, imagery, it's heavy, heavy, heavy on imagery, and a lot of times there's going to be explanations, at least as you read it, you sort of hope there are, uh, explanations of different things in the text, and it's going to use these uh, associations that are not immediately obvious unless they are explained by the text. So there are parts of Daniel that, uh, and the same is true of, of Revelation, for example, that are just extremely difficult to get a grasp on without lots of good study. And then the book of Daniel was written to offer encouragement to the Jewish exiles by revealing God's sovereign will for Israel after the period of Gentile domination. It was written to offer encouragement to the Jewish exiles by revealing God's sovereign will for Israel after the period of Gentile, uh, excuse me, domination. And um, finally, Daniel is the only book in the Hebrew Bible that directly attests belief in bodily resurrection. In bodily resurrection. You see that in Daniel 12, 2 to 3. This uh, belief is expressed there in the actual bodily resurrection of those who believe in Yahweh. What can we say about the reliability of Daniel? So we see that Daniel's obviously... Uh, a wonderful book. There are good practical truths we could take from it. There is heavy uh, prophetic imagery we can take from this. There are worldview implications that flow directly from things that we learn in the idea of Daniel. But, 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 can it be trusted? Can we trust it? Can we, we, do we know that Daniel is reliable as written? Well, I think it can be thought of as, um, in one sense, self-authenticating, because of its highly accurate prophetic messaging. And we're going to talk more about this below, so I won't dive deep into the details here. But I think there is a sense in which Daniel is kind of self-authenticating without much investigation of the external evidence even to be required. Now, Jesus himself affirms direct authorship by Daniel with special respect to future prophecy. And uh, you can see that in Matthew 24, 15, Mark 13, 14, Matthew 26, 64, amongst other places so these are you know there are certain things that fall into a criteria of um of having more certainty uh, maybe i could say than other things so for example if jesus says something we have massive amounts more of evidence for many new testament details in terms of physical evidence that we have um you know, things surrounding the life of Jesus, et cetera. you know, we have more evidence for that than we do for a lot of Old Testament um, things. And that's just going to be a product of, of, of time, really, uh, the time separated from then until now. And so when we look at that, We have certain assumptions that we are justified, I think, in making when it comes to assessing things like reliability. So, for example, we know Jesus was the Son of God. We have every reason to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. We have every reason to believe from both the biblical evidence and other historical evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus said that Daniel was the legit writer. So, um, that provides lots of credibility in my book lots of credence in my book um, to taking this to be a reliable source um, you can't get much more reliable than direct affirmation by jesus christ himself here's another couple points the author's uh, the book's author excuse me is named within it has features consistent with the time period that it purports to be written in and it seems to accurately deal with events around the time of writing as well as events in both the near and distant future. And if it can, so, uh, and here's the thing that a lot of people don't seem to, to, you know to, to realize about this. It would be um, not impossible, but it, it's more likely, okay? It's more likely that the, you know given supernatural inspiration and things of that nature, that we've got Daniel accurately, prophesying here than it is to think that those who came later would be able to so accurately you know get at the details um of that earlier time period yeah they did have books they were you know they were well read and things of that nature um but there are striking details that make that a little bit more uh implausible i think Uh, again that's somewhat personal opinion um and it does require a belief in supernatural inspiration. But I still think it's a solid point uh, to, to make. There's no reason to deny the prophecy on the basis of that. What we need to understand is that it would be, you know, somewhat difficult at least for somebody writing at that later time period to so accurately get the details down for this earlier time period here. It's not as though that is um, not a feat of its own. The prophet Ezekiel, here's another point, um, who lived contemporaneously... With Daniel, actually mentions Daniel three times um, in fourteen, four, and twenty, and twenty-eight, three. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament and was quite literally the Bible for many New Testament writers, contains a copy of Daniel, which seems very unlikely. Very unlikely on this critical second-century view. Here's why. Um, It's likely that the books of the Septuagint were all translated at the same time, and this would mean that Daniel had been accepted as canon, treated as authoritative scripture, and carried over 300 miles away to Alexandria, a mere 30 years after its writing. 30 years after its writing. That doesn't seem—that does not seem— very plausible. It seems more plausible that this would have been the kind of thing that had been accepted as canon for quite some time, for a few hundred years at this point, and so therefore was an obvious uh, choice. Because Daniel, finally, is written both in Hebrew and Aramaic, and some of the Aramaic fear, uh, features seem to be from the 2nd century. This is going to lead some to accept that late date that we talked about, even some evangelical scholars. But uh, like I mentioned earlier, it's kind of a moot point, okay? There are ways to actually explain the language we have, um, from either the critical later date or the conservative early dated perspective. In other words, there's arguments on both sides uh, for this. So uh, there's just no reason to reject the early date. There's really no reason to reject the early date, and it seems to make the most sense it's the simplest explanation of um, it being written during the time period that uh, it was set in. All right, moving along. Let's look at some key themes here uh, in in the book of Daniel. Some key themes. One of these, we might say, is the idea of prayer the idea of prayer in Daniel 6:10 we get a subtle yet uh, powerful insight into Daniel's life it was a life of faithful prayer it was a life of faithful prayer here's what we have here now when Daniel knew when the writing was signed he went into his house and his windows being opened in the chamber toward Jerusalem he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed gave thanks before his God as he did before time. Uh, Again, this is just going to uh, underscore this fact that Daniel's life was marked by prayer. He loved God. He trusted God. He relied on God for everything. And he didn't do this out of uh, some sort of obedience, uh, that was manufactured or, you know, some, some sort of, oh God, you know, I have to please you by, um, you know, robotically praying three times per day, etc. This is something that Daniel wanted to do. Daniel just loved the Lord. Daniel wanted to talk to the Lord. Daniel wanted and knew that he needed the Lord's counsel. He was a dedicated man. He was a man who, who gave his time to wisdom and to seeking the Lord's wisdom. Now, God, uh, in another uh, situation here, actually reveals the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams to Daniel in a vision. Verse 17 strongly underscores the importance of prayer to Daniel. He and his friends urged Yahweh to give Daniel the interpretation so they would not be destroyed with Babylon's wise men. And so that's an important point. Prayer came through for Daniel many times, not only in him talking to God, uh, but also, in a sense, in God talking to him. Here's another key theme. Power. Power. Remember, I mentioned this is uh, the book of Daniel. is this uh, this portrait of, of prayer and power and of prophecy. So when it comes to power, Daniel's integrity and faithfulness to God was without compromise. Notice his rejection. This is an early event here in the book of Daniel, Daniel eight. his rejection of the king's delicacies in, again, Daniel eight. John MacArthur notes this about it, quote, those enticing morsels and vintage wines, perks of the king's service, had been ritually dedicated to Babylon's false gods. What's more, eating food prepared to Babylonian standards was likely to put the young exiles in violation of God's laws concerning unclean foods. Daniel wanted no participation in any pagan feast, even to the slightest degree. That would be a form of idolatry that would provoke the wrath of a jealous God. His decision, though immediately dealing with food and wine, was ultimately a decision about who he worshipped. And Daniel 1, eight just to read that to you, it says this, "...but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself." So he had power in this situation to overcome what would be strong cultural temptation. You know, frankly, I I have a difficult enough time sticking to keto when my family is eating yummy starches and sugar, Uh, you know, let alone, you know, being in this situation where everybody around you um, is doing their thing and has such religious significance and such theological significance to them. And Daniel says, no, I'm not going to do it because to do that would be to defile myself to defile myself here's another instance in daniel 3 of daniel's power his cohorts shadrach meshach and abednego refused to bow down to the golden statue surely you remember this um the king had set up now the king was not suggesting that the statue was his god it was rather kind of like a tangible image used for worship and veneration um most probably the chief of uh excuse me it was most probably of the um uh, chief Babylon deity uh, Marduk although it is also possible that it could have just been a statue of the king himself there are some who who believe that there is a common misconception um, around verse number 25 here of Daniel 3 where it's talking about um, that he saw a son of God in the midst and um, this word here is Bar Elahina. Bar Elohim. Now, some interpret this to be a theophany, in other words, like like God, like literally a you know pre-incarnate uh, you know, experience of the pre-incarnate Christ. We talked about theophanies a few weeks ago. Um, but the usage for this term is Malak Yahweh, Malak Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. So this here would not seem to have been, you know, I'm just going to put it kind of facetious, but in a way that you'll get my point. You know, this was not Jesus standing in the fire with the three boys. Okay, that's not that's not what the king was seeing. Um but it very likely was a member of God's divine Council. You know, we talk about that stuff here from time to time. And uh, I think it's interesting to, to, to know I think it was probably um, uh, a divine council member that had uh, showed up on the scene and was demonstrating that, uh, that there was no need to fear and that God had this. Here's another instance of power, Daniel 4. We see an incredibly practical lesson on pride, uh, on pride. And, you know, pride really gets to the heart of the issue, right? Pride tends to be the heart of all sin. Uh, We want, for us, um, what we think is best, but we can't even begin to understand what the best for us is. That's where we have to lean and rely on God. But insofar as we keep leaning and relying on ourselves, we are going to be in a mess. And we see this lesson here, um, In short, here's what happens. The Lord gives Nebuchadnezzar a vision and Daniel interprets it. It has to do with what will come upon him if he remains prideful and he fails to recognize that Yahweh, who is the one true God, has ultimate power over earthly rulers. Now, this raises a really interesting question, uh, I think. Did Nebuchadnezzar get saved? Right? Did Nebuchadnezzar get saved? Uh, Because, again, he did come to eventually realize this. He came to realize that um, that 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 Yahweh is the one true God, and therefore he was released from this punishment. One of the writers that got questions uh, is going to examine this question, I think, in a helpful way, so I'm just going to read their answer to you. Quote, the exclamations of Nebuchadnezzar recorded in the book of Daniel have led some to consider the possibility that Nebuchadnezzar became a believer in the one true God. History records Nebuchadnezzar being a follower of the Babylonian gods Nabu and Marduk. It is possible that Nebuchadnezzar renounced these false gods and instead only worshipped the one true God. Yes, it is possible. If nothing else, Nebuchadnezzar became a henotheist, believing in many gods, but worshipping only one God as supreme. Based on his words recorded in Daniel, it definitely seems like Nebuchadnezzar submitted himself to the one true God. Further evidence is the fact that God refers to Nebuchadnezzar as my servant three times in the book of Jeremiah. Was Nebuchadnezzar saved? Ultimately, this is not a question that can be answered dogmatically. Whatever the case, the story of Nebuchadnezzar is an example of God's sovereignty over all men and the truth that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Proverbs 21, 1, close quote. So, I mean... (laughs) you might get to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. <laughs> I mean, what a thought, you know? You just, uh, you know, these are the things you don't think about. But when when you get into Bible nerdery, right, you, you start talking about these things. And it's like, holy cow. Like, I might get to meet King Nebuchadnezzar. Like, you always think about him in some of these, uh, you know, negative situations with a disposition toward Daniel. But then you start to take a look at the text closely. And by all indications, he came a believer in the one true God, in Yahweh. And Nebuchadnezzar, is potentially very potentially with the Lord right now. It's just an amazing thought. It's an amazing just just amazing thought to me. Okay, Daniel 6. Daniel 6 verses 1 through 3. Now this particular passage here demonstrates how power over self often leads to power over others in God's economy. An example, in other words, of great leadership. Great leadership, and the additional authority is bestowed upon him by Darius. It's bestowed upon Daniel by Darius, um, having already having been given a position of leadership under similar circumstances by Nebuchadnezzar earlier, which was in um, uh, chapter two and verses forty-six through. 49. So again, we see uh, that the earthly kings, that these uh, rulers are getting a sense for the kind of person that Daniel is, and they respect him for that, even if they don't agree with him necessarily on everything and even on some major things. Um, These positions ultimately were given, I believe, to Daniel under the superintending uh, sovereignty of God. And it just demonstrates that when you become a great leader of yourself first, when you have that kind of discipline, then ultimately it leads to being in charge of others, in charge of others. And I think that's something that reigns true all the way through New Testament theology. You know, Paul says, well, you know, don't you guys know that you're going to be judging angels? And it's in the context of You know, you need to have power over yourself, over your own thoughts, over your own actions, over your own ways, take power over yourself. You know, you don't need to get in these disputes uh, with other, you know, believers, these legal disputes and things over over this crazy stuff. Like have some self-control You know, one of these days you're going to be judging angels for crying out loud. Uh, You know, that's the kind of thing that Paul says. So this theme goes all throughout. In God's economy, self-leadership leads into true leadership over others. Self-leadership leads to true leadership over others. And that's one of the big lessons that we can learn from daniel and of course he was also an example of godliness in daniel 6 4 to 5 it says this then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against daniel concerning the kingdom but they could find none occasion nor fault for as much as he was faithful neither was there any error or fault found in him then said these men we shall not find any occasion against this daniel except we find it against him concerning the law of his god So, you know, Ezekiel takes him and places him in the ranks of guys like Noah and Job in Ezekiel 14, 14. And what I find interesting about this passage that I just read to you here, Daniel 6, 4 to 5, you know, they found issue with Jesus this way too. They found fault with Jesus concerning the law of his God as well, right? They tried to catch Jesus on these things and they tried to catch Daniel on these things. They were trying to show that Daniel or Jesus was inconsistent and they could not do it. They just they just could not do it. So they had to fabricate things. They had to fabricate things about God's expectations and God's requirements, etc., and place those demands on these people in order to charge them for it. It's just, it's just absolutely incredible. So what they did in the case of Daniel, of course, was they made a law against prayer. And they made a law that they knew that that when Daniel's they knew that Daniel would not give up his devotion. They knew that Daniel was dedicated. Again, he had that resolve. We've used that word multiple times now. They knew that Daniel would show up to pray. And of course, we see that very intentionally, Daniel was overt with his prayer, even when they made laws against it. Daniel was not going to back down, and he did not back down. And that is what they tried to catch him with and it's just you know they did the same thing to christ and in some cases they'll do the same thing to me and they'll do the same thing to you they will manufacture laws that they know we will break because we will not stand against god and what he says we ought to do and that happens today. It's happened uh, recently, although I will try not to get too, too political on this podcast to go into that right now. So anyway, um, yeah, uh, we could talk for uh, forever about that. But uh, I want this content to even be kind of evergreen and be something that is relevant to people uh, on into the future. So I'm going to move on from the current cultural circumstances. Suffice it to say, though, uh, that even though it might not be the same kind of thing exactly, there is certainly some form of persecution that goes on today. And Christ ultimately says, in this world, you're going to have problems but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. In other words, I'm going to help you through the problems. So don't get dissuaded, don't get dissuaged, don't get dismayed by the problems because God's got this. He just he just does. Okay, let's move to the issue of prophecy. Move to the issue of prophecy. Now, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, biblical scholar, writes this, quote That Daniel was indeed a prophet is well substantiated. He accurately prophesied the rise of the Medo-Persian, Greek, and Roman empires, even at a time when the Babylonian Empire, which preceded them all, was at its height. He accurately predicted the fortunes, conflicts, wars, and conspiracies of the two kingdoms of Syria and Egypt— between the fracturing of the Greek Empire and the conquest by Rome. He prophesied the role of the Maccabees during this period. It is Daniel's detailed accuracy in his prophecies that has caused many critics to try to give a late date to the book of Daniel, although no evidence has been discovered that would negate the book's composition at the time it claims to have been written." Now, regarding nations and rulers, there's a lot going on here with these themes in terms of prophecy in the book of Daniel, here's what uh, the late and uh, uh, very much appreciated Chuck Missler has to say about this quote: In Daniel two, King Nebuchadnezzar had a troubling dream, and Daniel's description and interpretation laid out in a comprehensive timeline involving four empires: Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. The fourth emerging in two successive phases, fragmenting and ultimately recombining into a final form. Later in his life, Daniel himself was given a series of four visions, recorded in Daniel 7, which, while using very different idioms, encompassed the same four empires. Just as Daniel had predicted, the Babylonian Empire was ultimately conquered by the Persians. The Persians were, in turn, conquered by the Greeks, and the Greeks were ultimately conquered by the Romans. But who conquered the Romans? No one no one. The Roman Empire ultimately disintegrated in two pieces. Many books deal with the so-called silent years, the 400 years between the Old and New Testaments, but what many overlook is that this period is also chronicled in Daniel in advance with such specific accuracy that skeptics have had to insist that it was written after the fact. Here we see this theme again. This is refuted by the fact that the Old Testament was translated into Greek three centuries before the New Testament period. Also, excuse me also, Jesus personally attributed the writing of the book of Daniel as we discussed, the prophet. Matthew 24:15 and Mark 13:14 close quote again that was the late great Chuck Missler with some thoughts on um, prophecy regarding kings and nations. And so here's another uh, important point here. Now after failing to learn the lesson, God taught Nebuchadnezzar, his replacement which was Belshazzar, found himself caught in the same tangled web in pride. And self aggrandizement. Again, pride and self aggrandizement. These things are just going to lead to destruction every single time. After he saw the quote unquote writing on the wall, we read that, um, or we read that his loins were loosed in chapter 6, that's Daniel 6, verse 6. He was scared. He was scared. But this is actually a very prophetic moment. See, uh, Isaiah 42, 24 through 45 and verse number 1. Isaiah had written about this man named Cyrus, by name, who would come on the scene just a few years after Belshazzar, 150 years prior to these events. Daniel delivered the letter, and Cyrus was friendly to the Jews. I mean, just a cool, uh, another one of these circumstances, right, where you just have this prophetic accuracy going on. By name, you know, close to 200 years, before the man shows up on the scene. It's just incredible. It's just incredible. There's also uh, a plethora of prophecy here regarding the Messiah and the end times. The Messiah and the end times. One of these themes is the so-called Son of Man, the Son of Man theme. We see this in Daniel 7.13, where it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him and i think of course that you know this is a a reference of course to the um the the, the what, what in jewish theology they would talk about as being the second yahweh figure the second power in heaven um you know jesus <laughs> basically we call jesus um the same kind of thinking there, the son of man of course. Um, you, you, you get Jesus who takes this claim for, for himself. Now, in Jewish thought, the Son of Man, again, was a messianic figure who would play a major role in the coming a- um, apocalypse. There's some sort of um, role that this Son of Man figure was going to play in the coming apocalypse. The Lexham Bible Dictionary explains it this way, quote, In the early to mid-20th century, scholarship posited that the text referred to an apocalyptic figure a divine heavenly being, who would appear at the end of time, to complete the work of judgment, and bring final salvation to God's people. This apocalyptic figure seems to feature in Jewish texts, such as first Enoch forty six through seventy one, and fourth Ezra thirteen. In both of these texts, an authoritative heavenly figure appears at God's side to judge the world and bring salvation. Both First Enoch and 4 Ezra play a major role in the Jewish concept of the Messiah, close quote. Now, you know, again, this is just so interesting to me. Because it is not as though that this idea, right, of Christ and being one with God, yet being a man, um, again, it is not as though this idea was totally unheard of. There was nuance to it that, you know, made it different and certainly made it uh, to be something that they weren't quite expecting. But nevertheless, the, the general uh, existence of this second power in heaven, the second figure who was going to be a, sort of a messianic and apocalyptic kind of figure, um, they didn't expect Jesus to come how he, how he came. But the idea is based solely, I mean, heavily on Jewish theology. I mean, it, it is not something that would be a surprise, okay? Um, Jewish theology very squarely supports the notion of Jesus as being this messianic figure. Okay, so multiple times, again, Jesus is going to adorn this title. Again, we're talking about the Son of Man, talking about the Son of Man that we see in Daniel 7, 13. And Jesus is going to adorn this title in response to challenges of his authority. In Mark 2, 10 through 11, Jesus says this, But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy. I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house." Now, this was a huge claim. It was a huge claim. For the Jews, only Yahweh, only Yahweh could forgive sins. Only Yahweh could forgive sins. So this was Jesus actually claiming equality with the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then grounding that authority in prior special revelation. It's amazing. It's an amazing thing um, how Jesus is taking on this role. We also see this going on in John 5 26 through 27. Jesus claims this, for as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son of Man to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. So again, we see Jesus as this Son of Man, this figure, claiming direct authority from Yahweh to execute judgment. And this is, again, only something that that Yahweh can do. And yet Jesus is taking that authority for himself. And it's because he is this messianic figure, the son of man, this Jewish uh, apocalyptic figure. Jesus takes on that figure for himself because that's that's who he is. Then we have the 70 weeks of Daniel. Uh, you can read Daniel 24 through 27 to get some context on this. And again, let me just remind you, you can go to the show notes here. All of these scriptures that we've been mentioning, um, Many of these are written out right there on the page. The ones that uh, aren't, and in fact, all of them anyway, are linked up through Logos Bible Software. They provide a really helpful tool that I've got plugged into the website where all you got to do is hover over that particular Bible verse and you see a preview right there of what the Bible verse says. And if it's a longer passage, you just click more and it will actually take you to where you can read more of the passage in a new tab or a new window. So uh, it's a really helpful way to follow along with the things that we're discussing here. Uh, if you have the ability to do that, you don't even have to have your Bible open. You can just follow along in the blog post. And uh, not only will you see the text and, um, you know, kind of what I'm using for my notes for what we're reading, but you can see any links, any resources, any Bible Verses that we mentioned there. So go check that out. Okay, so the 70 week thing. I'm going to kind of walk through uh, some thinking here because this can get kind of complicated, kind of quick, and this is going to round out our our, uh, prophecy section. Okay, now the term weeks, when we say the 70 weeks of Daniel, you've likely heard this before, at least uh, possibly. If you haven't, uh, this is not going to be the kind of the, um, you know, Well, we're going to kind of give you some of the beginning understanding of it. We're not going to dive deep into the details. But if you've never heard this idea before, then just, uh, you know, follow along best you can. And I'll uh, encourage you to check out some resources um, uh, about this. So the term weeks, when we say the 70 weeks of Daniel, is not meant to be taken literally. Again, this genre is one that is highly, highly poetic when we see this going on in Daniel chapter 9. The actual word here is shabuim, shabuim. And it means 70. It means 70. In this context, uh, scholars are virtually agreed that it has the idea of this. Weeks of years. Weeks of years. So this concept is mostly going to be, again, this is not universal, but mostly it's going to be understood by conservative scholars to represent sort of an abridged timeline of events leading up to the arrival of the Messiah which is um, week 69, at which time a break in the sequence happens. This is by far the most popular understanding of this when it comes to uh, popular circles of prophecy. Um, week number 70 is going to represent the uh, week, again, in air quotes there, so the seven-year period of tribulation preceding the millennial reign of Christ. And again, this is going to follow along with a more of a premillennial uh, view of, the, uh, of these events. Now, uh, there are other ways of understanding that as well. I'm not as familiar with them. Frankly, I haven't done a deep dive myself into prophecy. I've always been raised on the premillennialist position, um, and uh, so that's, uh, you know, I I currently hold that, uh, but sort of by by default. I have studied it a little bit, uh, don't get me wrong, um, but there is uh, more I want to look into. I definitely think there's some, uh, you know, nuance that could be discussed there, but for the most part, I find this to be a pretty consistent way of looking at things, this premillennialist view. So if you don't take that view, well, that's fine, you surely know by now that i am one who is open to disagreement um but uh, but that's a particular position that i take and um so that's why I, I presented it this way so now there's lots of awesome stuff in this prophecy but let's just seek to understand the force of it and we're going to look at one series of events okay and this regards the exact date of the pronunciation of jesus as king okay check this out one hundred and seventy-three thousand eight hundred and eighty days would occur between the command to rebuild Jerusalem and its walls, specifically and the presentation of Messiah as king. On March 14th, 445 BC, the decree to rebuild the city and its walls went out from Artaxerxes Longimanus. I don't know exactly the best way to say that, so that's how we're going to say it. Artaxerxes, maybe it's Longimanus. That sounds pretty cool. Jesus denounced every attempt to regard himself as king, except the one he arranged at the triumphal entry in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy in chapter 9 and verse 9. So let me let uh, Chuck Mistler again sum this up. Quote, this occurred on the 10th of Nisan or April 6th, 32 A.D., When you convert the Hebrew text into the terms of our calendar, you discover that there were exactly 173,880 days between the decree of Artaxerxes and the presentation of the Messiah, the King, to Israel. Gabriel's prophecy given to Daniel five centuries later and translated into Greek three centuries before the fact was fulfilled to the exact day the exact day close quote now, again so, so that's uh, just some of what uh, you know if you take this understanding of this prophecy i mean you get some pretty cool numbers you know some pretty cool things that are that are lining up there uh, and and going together and so i think there's great reason to trust in the prophetic material that we have um from daniel and again from the entire old testament uh, prophecy i think in the circles of apologetics is one of the most underused um uh, th- th- things that, that help us to understand more about uh, God and God's Word and uh, the reliability and trustworthiness of it. So I think we should make more uh, of, of prophecy. I think um, because of the way a lot of popular teachers of prophecy have unfortunately misrepresented uh, biblical um, pr- uh, prophetic teaching and they've really sensationalized it, I think a lot of people steer clear of that topic. And, you know, I, I might, uh, with some introspection here, that might be why I've steered clear of it. You know, I don't know. Um it's a hard topic to get into, and you have to do the work, the due diligence of really seeking to understand it for yourself and also seeking to learn from other people who you believe have a reasonable grasp on it without getting bogged down with some of these ideas that, uh, that are sensationalized in pop culture, uh, or at least in pop evangelical culture. So anyway, there's some great truth to be learned from the prophecy and from the prophetic material in the book of Daniel, and so I highly would encourage you to dive into that for yourself and check it out sometime. So wrapping up here, you know, there are many... Um, practical things that we can learn from the book of daniel we've talked about some of them as we went throughout but i think there are three really uh, important takeaways to that end that we can learn from this study and so let's discuss them now first of all is that god is the ruler of rulers god yahweh the god of the hebrews the god of the bible is the ruler of rulers despite the attempts of prideful kings to usurp him god powerfully demonstrates his supreme authority by exacting judgment on the most powerful of earthly men god will reward the faithful, but God will punish the unfaithful, those who hate him and despise him. There is punishment, but there is reward. God is the ruler of rulers. We should not fear what man can do unto us because of who God is. The second is that Daniel lived a life marked by faithfulness and devotion. Again, despite all of the theological and prophetic significance of this book, Daniel is personally known for his faithfulness in chapter 6, verse 10, and his, excuse me, verse 4, and his prayer life. That's chapter 6 and verse 10. Um, th- there, There's a lot going on, again, from the prophetic, from the theological, you know, perspective in this book, but there's some great practical truth as well. And it's just as much about those other things as it is about Daniel's resolve, Daniel's fortitude, Daniel's um, faithfulness, Daniel's devotion, Towards God, and we must learn from that equally, if not more so, than we learn from the other things. And then finally is that God controls the future. God controls the future. We've seen only a fraction, a fraction here in, the, in our little study, of the prophetic and eschatological detail that's available for the student of Daniel to discover. I mean, there's so much more, there's so much more, there's so much more, and I couldn't have even represented it as best as it can be represented, uh, again, because I've not done the deep dive that many others have into this subject in the book of Daniel. What is clear, though, no matter what, it's clear. That God knows and sovereignly arranges the future to suit his good purposes. He does it. He arranges it. How that happens, there's different opinions. I have my own. Um, but he does it to suit his good purposes and ultimately to suit his will. And with that assurance, I think, comes comfort, comes hope, and peace, uh, peace in, in the midst of trouble. No matter what, God is there. God is in control. Nothing has escaped God. God is sovereign. And that, my friends, is an amazing truth. To rest upon all right well god bless you man for listening to this episode this one went uh, a little long but hey i thank you, you know, almost an hour here but man i thank you so much for your time uh, that you took to um listen to this i hope that you found it helpful uh, a good deep dive into an overview of this wonderful book of uh, the bible and i hope you found uh, found something practical that you can take away and use in your daily walk and in your daily life Uh, as you seek to serve the Lord. As we go this week, I just want to say thank you again for joining. And uh, if you want to support this podcast, the best way that you can do that is to either use or tell somebody else about Northmax Services. Again, that is the business that I personally run and manage. It's uh, for website design, graphic design, marketing, that's social media marketing, email marketing, content marketing, marketing, and things of that nature. We service a wide variety of clients. We have helped seemingly every kind of person. I mean, HVAC companies, uh, executive coaches for um, legal, uh, the, the legal industry. We have helped uh, uh, nonprofits, large nonprofits, and some smaller ministries as well. Uh, insurance people. I mean, we, we've helped everybody. And um, and it's, my, you know, it's one of the fun things for me, actually, to be able to dive in with a client and understand how their business works, how their organization works, and how we can be of help to get other people to, um, to to respond to their message. everybody's got a story. everybody's got a message and my guess is that you are no different and that you have people who are going to ask for things like this and ask their network and I just uh, if you would prayerfully consider sending them to me uh, Steve and again my website is North Mac services. Dot com, and you can go there and check out the things that we can do and how we can help. Tell somebody this week also about the podcast. I mean, this is um, we, we've had some growth, and I would love to see more. I would love to see more people getting into the ways, the, the dark side of Bible nerdery, if you will, and getting in and diving into the trenches with us here on this podcast. I just absolutely love the opportunity to speak into your life each and every week, and would love the opportunity to do that for even more people. And the way these things spread is word of mouth. That's just the bottom line. I've looked at all the research. I've done everything. I, you know, I could. I'm doing all the other things that I can. There is no way that podcasts spread like word of mouth. It's just like you tell your friends about that new movie that you found that you really love. Well, if you love this podcast, if you look forward to this podcast every week, tell somebody about it tell your friends about it. Let them listen to it. Have them listen to it. Have it playing in your car because I want people to understand and get on board with this message. We're trying to help people fall in love with the Bible. That's the mission. That's the message. That's the most important thing. They need to fall in love with God's word because God's word is the only answer in these dark days. It's the only answer. And as long as we have that, we have a good grounding in that and we have a deeper grounding in that than just the surface level understanding. Then we can move forward and then we can serve God in the way that he intends for us to. God bless you. I love you. I'm excited to get uh, into your speakers again, into your ears next week.